Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello and welcome to the red box podcast from the times i'm matt chorley back from a summer break to find parliament is like a ghost town at the moment very much the calm before the coming political storm but we've got plenty to talk about and a stellar panel to give their expert opinion this week, I'm joined by The Times policy editor, Ollie Wright, who thinks Labour are turning into UKIP. Political reporter, Henry Zeffman, who's been keeping score on Whitehall's turf wars. But first, Jill Rutter from the Institute for Government on control freakery in number 10. So how will Theresa May run the country? In explaining the decision to re-examine the Hinkley Point contract, number 10 said that the Prime Minister was applying her method of meticulously studying all the papers to come to a view with the help of hand-picked advisers. That can work for a few top priority issues and will have to be how the Prime Minister works through Brexit. But if she tries to apply that method to decisions across the board, she'll find her government grinding to a halt. This is interesting because Theresa's way of running number 10 already feels very different to David Cameron's. The criticism of David Cameron is sometimes a bit too hands-off. He only got involved at the last minute when the proverbial hit the fan. Do you think this is just Theresa settling in or do you think this is the way that she operates? It's the way she appeared to operate in the Home Office, uh, that she was very hands-on, knew all the issues, read all the papers, and sort of knew everything backwards and would take over things when there was any sign of things going slightly astray. That's quite interesting, because we go from having Prime Ministers who've had no experience in government at all, David Cameron, Tony Blair, to having Prime Ministers who had a load of experience in government, Gordon Brown, Theresa May in that camp, Gordon Brown, I think, certainly found that his methods in the Treasury didn't translate at all well into number 10. Uh, I think it's interesting to see whether the Home Office method can translate. The thing about the Home Office is even though you are much more at the mercy of events than you are in the Treasury, in good economic times, basically, you can control the agenda and do as much or as little as you really want at the Treasury. Uh, So Theresa's had to cope with events, but she's only been having to do one department's business and number 10 you have things hitting at you right left and centre got to be across the whole agenda of government and she's got to do Brexit so if you really want to apply a method that worked for one department's portfolio in number 10 
I think there aren't enough hours in the day to do that. And so actually the best training for being Prime Minister is, is probably being leader of the opposition because in that sense you are slightly floating above everything, you're dipping in, in and out of lots of issues, you're, you're not drilling down into one topic area all the time. That's interesting. I think the combination of having been leader of the opposition and some ministerial experience, yes. which actually the last one was Margaret Thatcher, yeah. is probably the best combination because you've had to do that sort of party stuff, the actually keeping all your colleagues on side, managing in parliament, getting through that, as well as sort of being across the whole set of issues and of course doing Prime Minister's questions. It looks from her first outing as though Theresa May isn't going to find Prime Minister's questions that difficult. But it actually absorbs quite a lot of number 10 time and effort just to make sure you're not going to get caught out on a tricky issue that's going on somewhere down in the weeds of Whitehall. And she's got to do Brexit. I think, you know, don't underestimate that ultimately we'll all have to come down to her to do the final deals. Ollie, what have you made of this? So they called in, we all thought the Hinkley Point was about to get the, the mm. green light. And at the last moment, number 10 said they were calling it in and they were going to have another look at the deal. I mean, in part, this seems like just a way of showing that number 10 is the boss and it's just going to have another look at what the previous mm. regime did. And most people still probably expect Hinkley Point to go ahead. Yeah. But, but what do you think about what that means long term for the way that Theresa will try and run well, number I mean, 10? I think there's, there's an interesting point about Hinkley, which is she got quite good headlines. I'm going to be the Prime Minister that looks at this again, goes through it really thoroughly. But there's a very big question mark over how much choice she actually has in this decision. I mean, Hinkley is already some of the way down the line. We've got a whole bunch of nuclear power stations that will shut off in the early 2030s. It may be that however many reservations she has, she doesn't have a choice about whether to go ahead or not, that if we want to keep the lights on, we have to go with Hinkley. And But the fact that she didn't just sort of rubber stamp a decision that was basically made by David Cameron and George Osborne. She now owns that problem. And if Hinckley turns out to be the white elephant that a lot of people think it does, she can no longer wash her hands of it and say, oh, that had nothing to do with me. That was um, that was David Cameron because she's scrutinised <laughs> it. And actually, even if it goes ahead as planned, it's still a pretty duff deal. Lots of people think that we're paying over the odds. The wholesale yep. price of electricity is double what it currently is. And so even if it goes through, sells through no problems, it's still a pretty it, duff deal. It can still be a duff and rotten deal but you still may not have no choice about doing yes, that exactly. deal because you've already gone a certain yeah, yeah. way and you can't you know the thing with nuclear is these things you can't do overnight and i don't know how many gas power stations you'd have to build in order to um accommodate the loss of hinkley but it would be a lot it would do um a lot of damage to our carbon targets of which are most of which are legally binding she may find that she thinks it's a duff deal having looked at it but there's absolutely nothing she can do about it i think it. there's an interesting thing if she finds she can't do anything on the main thing about what does she do to actually show that her uh, second look has yielded some benefits. I think you sl- politically having called it in and caused that sort of slight furore when the sandwich is already in the marquee or whatever. <laughs> I think you need to show that you've achieved something by having another look. I think it's quite interesting. I think one of the things that's really quite interesting is this sort of picture of Theresa May as someone who was sitting in Cabinet for all that time but actually having her own thoughts about a lot of the decisions that were being made in the Cabinet's name. Not least on personnel matters. I mean, (laughs) you know, you can see her sitting there looking at Michael Gove saying, I'm going to kill you one day. (laughs) (laughs) She just drew, it looked like she just drew uh, an outline of the Cabinet table and just sort of did cross it. Every time somebody spoke, like, you've gone, Nicky Morgan, gone. Yeah. It was quite quite extraordinary. Henry, what do you make of this? Because it, it's sort of interesting that somebody who's been on the front line of politics for such a long time, we don't really know a huge amount about her, what her political parties are, or really how she operates. Well, so what's really fascinating about the Hinckley decision is that it was traced back 
in a lot of people's minds to a column written by her Joint Chief of Staff, Nick Timothy, uh, for the Conservative Home website not that long ago, where he expressed fears about the security implications of having uh, China having such a big stake in British energy. And that's kind of symptomatic of the fact that we don't know anything really about what Theresa May thinks about politics. The first sort of wide-ranging speech she made uh, was in 2012 or 2013. She shadowed all sorts of briefs in opposition, but never for very long when the Conservatives looked like they were actually going to be in government. Uh, under David Cameron, she was mostly shadow leader of the House, which is which is making jokes while a few lobby reporters watch. <laughs> it's really interesting that actually what we do know of her is what we know of her chief of staff's views as expressed through a website column. Uh, we know that he's very influenced by Joseph Chamberlain, uh, who's a sort of early 20th century figure. Is that how long but... the Tinkley plan has been in place? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if Joseph Chamberlain uh, anticipated the complex uh, British energy uh, patchwork in the early 21st century. But it's certainly the case that she operates with a very small circle, and we don't really know what much of that and circle is. And it does thinks. feel like so these, she's got this unusual arrangement of two joint chiefs of starters, uh, Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill, who actually came on the podcast a few months ago. I think that even she realised that she would be within Downing Street in not very long. But almost everything seems to be going through them. It's a very tight team. The, the What used to be a huge hapostate meeting in Downing Street is now a much smaller affair, and it's everything is just... Nothing gets past them unless those two agree to it. But do you, do you think that's sustainable, Jill? People always have one person, one or two people who who have had years to develop their sort of way of dividing up things, uh, the way they work together. So I don't think that's particularly a problem. There's always one sort of critical advisor. I think the interesting thing for Theresa May is how does she build the rest of number 10 around her and the link she makes into the Cabinet Office. We've seen sort of successive Prime Ministers basically make a mess of number 10 when they get in. I mean, Tony Blair basically didn't start getting the apparatus he wanted in place until really, you know, by his second election in 2001. Gordon Brown, you know, defined himself, it's not going to be like it was under Tony Blair, said, I'm not going to have all these special advisors, don't need that, etc., etc. Rapidly then built them all back up when he discovered he did need all those special advisors. David Cameron did the same thing. I mean, he's number 10 really seemed amazingly ineffective early on, uh, just underpowered, not across big issues, and quite a lot of people say things like the health reforms got through unchallenged because number 10 was not really engaged. So I think it's it's very interesting of who else does she bring in. So we know that sort of Nick Timothy, Fiona Hill, she's very used to working with them. She's brought in somebody... Uh, to the head of the policy unit. She's kept on one or two people, I think, from the Cameron policy unit. But, you know, are those policy unit people really close to her? You know, we may not know what Theresa's agenda is, but do they know it? Can they go out and really represent that and the rest of Whitehall? There's a question of whether or not Theresa knows what the agenda is as well. That's the... Because she's not... You know, we know if Michael Gover become Prime Minister... Mm. In every government department he's been in, he's he was constantly yeah. drifting off into other areas of policy because, you know, that's that's the sort of politician that he was. But we had a slight inkling, didn't we, in the sort of, you know, three-hour Tory leadership campaign between <laughs> uh, Theresa May launching her leadership campaign and Andrea Leadsom deciding to withdraw. So, uh, so certainly when we've been looking at what might Theresa May be interested in, we've been going back to that Birmingham speech she made uh, to to have a look. It's the only text we've got. Uh, the the party conference speech will be, yeah. will be quite interesting. I mean, it's quite interesting because one of the things I think number 10 
you know, under David Cameron, wasn't that keen to do was to encourage other cabinet ministers very visibly to run for leader by setting out wide ranging speeches of their political philosophy. I think actually Theresa May did try that at one stage and was told not to do it anymore. No. So I'd actually invited her to come to launch a women leaders campaign, a uh, women leaders series at uh, the Institute for Government. And she sort of said yes in principle then I think after she was told not to be uh, not to be so visibly running for leader she uh, she never took up our offer so we never heard her views even on that though that was something I think she felt quite strongly about so I think it's quite interesting she didn't actually have to have to limit her options that much in the leadership campaign since it was so brief but one of the things that I think is really interesting you saw that to an extent with John Major I went to number 10 under John Major is if people don't really know what to expect from you and then they're surprised, they don't get quite what they thought, you may find you don't really have that bigger mandate when you're in number 10 and people just think that it's all to play for and that's quite a dangerous place to be. There is a fascinating question about how the other cabinet ministers fit into this. So in that Birmingham speech, which was her biggest statement of policy during her leadership campaign and also the day that she found out she was going to become prime minister, she sort of suggested that the government should commit to much bigger infrastructure spending. She brought up the spectre of an industrial strategy, which is now, of course, part of the newly fashioned business department. I mean, one Tory said to me uh, after that, uh, there shouldn't be an industrial strategy. The markets do it. And so, you know, that's a very interesting new uh, position. But do we know whether Philip Hammond agrees with any of this, her chancellor? All we know of Philip Hammond's economic views, really, is he was shadow chief secretary to the treasury when George Osborne was shadow chancellor and together they came up with austerity as a response to the financial crisis. Well, this, these are very different clothes. Uh, it's not just a question of whether Philip Hammond can wear them, it's whether he wants to. And it's also interesting on the deficit. She, you know, they've basically abandoned the, t- the idea of reaching a surplus by 2020. And that must become a point where if she moves away from every position that the Tories did get a mandate for uh, in 2015, then the argument for a general election becomes stronger whether that's from the opposition or arguably she could then uh, use that as the uh, reason for changing her mind and calling a general election which is still a slightly um, terrifying prospect that's having still only just recovered uh, only just recovered from brexit uh, let's move on though uh, to the uh, labor party and ollie you've got an interesting take on where you think the labor party might be heading It seems hard to remember now, but a little more than a year ago, there was a realistic prospect that Labour would form the next government. Uh, Frankly, now you get better odds on the party breaking up altogether. So, is there any way back, or have we just got three more years when Her Majesty's opposition has little more electoral relevance than UKIP? Talk about kicking a party when they're down. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, so where do we start with, uh, where, where, where we are with the Labour Party? They are still in the middle of this leadership campaign. Yes. Jeremy Corbyn against Owen Smith, nobody realistically expects an outcome other than Jeremy Corbyn winning. No, I think that's I think that's right. I mean, you know, you talk to people around Owen Smith and the closest they come is to say, well, we think it will be closer than some people are saying. But I've not heard anyone who says we're going to win or believes they've got any realistic chance of winning. Now, we could all be proved horrendously wrong, but... It has been known. It has been known. It has been known. Um, And we'll say we knew it all along. Yeah, I mean, come September and Labour Party conference, I think Jeremy Corbyn um, is, is is going to be back in post. And that poses all sorts of questions for the party and in particular its MPs. I mean, one, one, one Labour figure said that one of the problems was that those MPs who didn't support Jeremy Corbyn and amount to about 200, said they are atomised. It's not as if they are a unit 
in their own right that can take a decisive position and can act in a certain way. Uh, they have a sort of multitude of different positions. Some will may go back to sort of shadow cabinet posts and feel that really their job is to be loyal. Others are, you know, completely out, don't want anything to do with it. Some may just drift out of politics altogether. I was talking to one who said that, said, I used to get really upset with the fact that my local party was keen on deselecting me. He said, you know, now, <laughs> now he said, you know, he says, I think they've got a point. He says, you know, I just don't agree with them any longer. Um, so I can't see a sort of unified parliamentary opposition to, to, to Corbyn. And I mean, just sort of every day throws up new sort of weirdnesses. And yeah, if we'd thought back sort of a year and a half ago and we were sat here talking about Ed Miliband, a small hint from someone in the shadow cabinet that they didn't agree with Ed could be a story. I mean, now you've got these vast chasms <laughs> and you're sort of, you're fighting for a down, down page story on sort of towards the back of the newspaper. I mean, the sort of scale of what it takes to get a story there is is, is high. And the, the UKIP thing came from talking to a colleague yesterday who, who said, you know, it is like UKIP, the sort of bizarreness of the rows and the sort of the sort of full-throttled attacks um, is, is, is just extraordinary. You just can't get any cuts. Well, this is one of the reasons why. So in the uh, Red Box morning email that I do. This is now this has become a running joke that every morning I sign off with it and Jeremy Corbyn clings on, obviously. So even in the face, I think at some point I even compared him to a cockroach. That uh (laughs) because he just clings on regardless. You know, almost all of the shadow cabinet resides. He loses a vote of no confidence. Um two people launch leadership challenges again. And he just sort of just glides on you know, goes, stands on the top of another old fire engine and speaks to some cheering teenagers and, and he just he's just there and he, he carries... Can you see any prospect of him going anywhere, Henry? No. Um, and I think actually one of the, you know, the interesting thing about him gliding on serenely is I think he enjoys this more than being leader of the Labour Party. He enjoys campaigning to be leader of the Labour Party. I mean, this idea... Which... Well, it's quite good fun going around and having people chanting your name and... Yeah, well, if you've spent 30... Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. 
two years before that as an MP who no one cares about, even in Islington North, I think it probably is quite nice. Uh, and you can understand why you might develop a bit of a messiah complex. Uh, and, uh, and he has. And he will go on. No, I mean, one of the options mooted by Labour rebels, and when I say rebels, I mean, you know, almost the entirety of its parliamentary party, (laughs) is that they'll do this every year until he loses and keep challenging him. He'd love that. He'd love nothing more than to get to do this every year, because when he's not doing this, he has to stand at the dispatch box and talk about actual policies, which he's quite bad at doing. uh, Even on his specialist subjects. So, uh, but also the idea of them doing, I mean. Not being rude about Owen Smith, but he will be rude because he's not very good. No, he's not. And the lot who stood against Jeremy Corbyn last year weren't very good. But the question is, Matt, who is good? Well, that's the problem. <laughs> yes, well, that is the problem. Then the Labour Party, I think we might have talked about this before. I just think the Labour Party's had this problem. It probably goes back to the moment that Tony Blair stood down. Gordon Brown had killed anyone who wanted to mm. run against him for the Labour leadership, and nobody else has ever really emerged who was any good. We talked up the sort of twenty, the twenty ten people that were promoted. You know, uh, the likes of you know Rachel Reeves and and, and Chucker, but you know, unfortunately, they haven't stood the test of even a short amount of time. And yeah, you, know, you can't help but feel that after the next election, whenever that may be, whenever the sort of madness goes. You know, if Labour is to have an electoral future, the person who will eventually lead it um, will be someone that most people haven't heard of. I just don't see any or of the... Or there'll be somebody who's actually running a big city. If we have these mm-hmm. metro mayors and people in but the Labour Party the, decide have, that that's going to be you sort have of the Boris Bo- Johnson... You have the Boris Johnson problem, which is if they're running one of those big cities, how do you get back into Parliament in order to, in order to, 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 to you know... Take control say, within of the party. Four months of standing down as London Mayor, he's Foreign Secretary. It's not a bad model. <laughs> but the, I mean, there's an, there's an but even bigger... But he's not leader, and that's what he wanted to be. There's an even bigger problem than how would uh, Sadiq Khan or Perish the Thought, Andy Burnham, get back into uh, Parliament to uh, run another leadership campaign, which is the Labour Party membership does not look like it's going to be the kind of membership that would vote for anyone in that sort of very broad political spectrum anytime soon. And that's that's when Labour really starts to acquire the stench of death, is when Owen Smith loses and a lot of people who have either paid their £25 or joined up for this sort of last go of it will go, no, actually, I don't want to do this every year. Actually, maybe <laughs> I shouldn't be in a party where the vast majority disagrees with me maybe they should be welcome to their party which you know has a leader which espouses the things that most of its members now think but i, I think i think i think there's a there's a real argument saying the labor the labor the, the problem is that the the party that the mps think they belong to doesn't exist anymore and it has been taken over in vast numbers and there's no easy way of reversing that but has it been taken over? I mean, oh, I mean, I, there's sort of Trotskyite infiltrators and all the rest. No, don't be taking it. Is it not just a bunch of sort of idealistic people who, you know, once voted for Tony Blair, once voted for Nick Clegg, and now sort of attached for that, aren't they? to? <laughs> well, <laughs> possibly, but you know, the same kind of phenomena that they they attach their own views on this blank canvas that is Jeremy Corbyn, um, and that actually they're not that far left. I don't know. It's an interesting question. You know, beyond but then it becomes a cult thing. It's not about party. It becomes a cult. So you, you, you are supporting. It's not Labour that's supporting. It's the it's it's the Jeremy Corbyn party. And Jill, what does this mean for good or bad government? If the on the one hand we've got the government slim majority, you know, apparently trying to move away from some of its own policies, while also trying to deal with Brexit, which is such a massive issue, and it's got a completely non-existent opposition. 
I think it's quite interesting. I think it's generally bad for good government to have a non-existent opposition. First of all, actually, you get better policies if you have to justify them to people who can question them effectively. And if you don't have an opposition that is bothering to do that systematically, then that... Uh, forces you not to think them through. Secondly, I think the other interesting thing is in terms of the sort of parliamentary dynamics is if people don't think there's much opposition coming from the opposite benches, you get more and more opposition, I think, potentially from behind you. And one of the things that we do know is that once you move away from just saying Brexit means Brexit to Brexit means X or Y or whatever, the people who don't agree with your interpretation of Brexit uh, may feel that actually they have a mandate from the people to try to argue very strongly in favour of their interpretation. So I think generally it's not particularly good news for the country. I think it's probably not that great news either for the government. I think you work better with an effective opposition. The thing it does potentially give you is a luxury to think about, do I go to the country in the autumn? Probably not. In the spring? No idea. Or do I wait for the full five years? Because if you don't see any prospect of a resurgent opposition coming at you, you don't feel bounced into doing that. So... Uh, so you can probably govern for a slightly longer term. Excellent stuff. Well, let's move. Uh, let's move on, Henry. To well, there is sort of a there's a serious story buried underneath the fact <laughs> that you've spent most of the summer recess watching cats. The feline fight to be Whitehall's top cat has reached new heights. Larry, who fends off rodents behind the famous black door of Number Ten, has spent much of the summer scrapping with Palmerston, the Foreign Office's chief mouser. And as if the pair haven't got enough on their food bowl, clawing over each other for superiority, there's a new cat in town at the Treasury, Gladstone. But the mischievous moggies are only taking a lead from their politician masters. Boris Johnson, the Foreign Secretary, is already deep in a three-way turf war with Liam Fox, the International Trade Secretary, and David Davis, who's overseeing Brexit. Just how will Theresa May keep the peace? This isn't going to, uh, she's not going to resolve this by uh, just getting Fiona and uh, Nick to bang some heads together, I don't think, either. So um, let's let's do the, we'll do the politics first, and then we'll do, <laughs> then we'll do the cats. It was probably all seemed like a very good idea on the day of the reshuffle, because uh, it happened much quicker than she'd planned. I mean, at best, Theresa May probably thought she had six weeks during the leadership campaign to draw up her new cabinet, and instead she had about six hours. It seemed like a great wheeze for about, 24 hours by splitting up the Brexit job in three directions, Boris Johnson, David Davis and Liam Fox. Uh, But they're already, I mean, both fighting over policy, staff and even office space. Mm. So uh, staff was probably the the most pronounced one that we know of. Uh, So there was a letter leaked a few weeks ago that Liam Fox apparently sent within a fortnight of arriving in his new cabinet job five years after resigning as Defence Secretary in, uh, I think it's fair to say, disgrace where he wrote a letter to Boris Johnson, the Foreign Secretary, saying uh, your economic diplomacy team, which is quite a, a hefty chunk of the Foreign Office, something that Foreign Secretaries under David Cameron were, were asked to put a renewed focus into, he said, I think they should come over to me. Uh, otherwise, British trade won't flourish, uh, which is quite a sort of high bar to set. And Boris Johnson said, uh, no, of course not, but I'll second you a handful of staff. Uh, Theresa May is said to take a dim view of this, that would be complicated enough if there weren't then the Department for Exiting the European Union, which is headed by David Davis. He went on the Sunday politics shows a few days after his appointment and said, oh, civil servants are going to be applying for every job. We'll be fighting off the the most able civil servants to go for the even more able. Didn't turn out to be true. Uh, There aren't many civil servants. He asked for staff to come from the Treasury. They didn't want to go. 
uh, he now has a sort of senior civil service team in place, but below that there's some sort of talk that it's basically very junior civil servants in way over their heads. It is a mess. And to compound it all, they all have to share the Foreign Secretary's official residence, which gives some suggestion that that was what Theresa May was thinking, breaking up the Foreign Office into three. But if no civil servants are moving, you just have a Foreign Office and two very angry Brexiters looking for a department. Jill, what's your take on this, on the way that Whitehall's been carved up? We're generally always very sceptical about machinery of government changes, purely because you always get this sort of fighting about which bits go where, who gives what bit of budget to whom and things like that, where do you accommodate people I mean, you know, we've talked about the sort of you know central things, all the Brexit people, but things like you know, where do you put the higher education people who are now supposed to be part of the education department, given that their department's not big enough to accommodate them, but they need to move out to make room for the climate change people coming into to base so we've generally always said you have to cover up Whitehall, somehow Nothing is perfect, but actually there is a big price to be paid when you when you change things round. So we were quite sceptical on the case for that. I'm not sure about the staffing of the Department for Exiting the EU. I mean, looking at some of the people they've got, they've got some people who you look around and say, well, those are, really are very good people, actually. They've got some very good people in there. Who, they who, say, who should we be keeping an eye on? Who, well, good? Ollie Robbins, is, who's the permanent secretary there, is widely viewed as a star in the making um, but some of the people that's the next level down well uh, people that yeah I've worked with no no are good so uh, so I don't think they're having that much of a problem there they say they've got lots of people applying to join them so it takes time to get those people in uh, we had an event at the Institute for Government uh, a week after the referendum where Melanie Dawes the permanent secretary at community and local government said that actually the civil service would be very collaborative in moving people. So it's really interesting, both about whether Theresa May knocks heads together, but actually whether Jeremy Hayward, Melanie chairing the Civil Service People Board, whether they knock heads together if people aren't coughing up decent people. Quite interesting, the David, uh, the um, Foreign Office, uh, Liam Fox one, because of course Liam Fox proposed that Brexit, when he was running for leader, briefly proposed that actually it should all be done from a sort of souped up foreign office so the foreign office should do the international trade and do brexit or whatever whether that was a sort of job application that was what he wanted to do but his idea was this would all be run out of the foreign office which would then take on this much much bigger role but can so, i just sort of challenge you on that on the sort of having been yeah. in the treasury yeah do you really think that institutionally the treasury are keen to allow key bits of the Brexit negotiations on finance to be run out of a separate department to which they don't control. I mean, I met someone for the Treasury who's, the other day who said, that's nonsense. The idea that the Treasury are not going to want to be in control of this yeah, is for the birds. Well, the person who's ultimately in control of all of it is the Prime Minister. Indeed, so but it's on, an clearly the Prime Minister. on an institutional we, level. We thought very much that actually the right way of going was not to have a separate department for exiting the EU, but to do what we'd actually always had on all European negotiations, which was to have a Cabinet Office unit, would have to be a much bigger Cabinet Office unit, obviously, and in a sense, DexU looks like a Cabinet Office coordinating unit, that is a department, uh, because you've got to coordinate across all of these departmental interests. So we thought, actually just build on your existing unit you have a head of it who actually Ollie Robbins is an ex-treasury person it's been a bit of time since he's been in the treasury but he grew up in the treasury mm. who is both permanent secretary David Davis but also the principal EU advisor to the prime minister so that's quite really an interesting interesting, that, that interesting role yeah. of course the treasury will be 
you know, in there, etc. And that's another area where it's really interesting about whether Theresa May and Philip Hammond will see eye to eye on all those sort of treasury aspects mm. of Brexit. I mean, negotiating money, negotiating what happens afterwards on money, but also the treasury as the department that, in a sense, looks after, in inverted commas, the city financial regulation, all of that sort of complicated sectoral issue interests as well. So uh, I think one of the key things about Brexit is Brexit could never be in one department. Brexit has to be coordinated uh, through Theresa May, through David Davis, through now Dexu, through her Brexit cabinet committee. Uh, But Brexit affects a substantial slug of Whitehall very profoundly. Some departments aren't that touched, but other ones, it affects almost everything they do. It's going to be a huge issue for the Home Office, uh, both on migration and on security cooperation. Very big issue for DEFRA. All its policies, effectively, are European policies. It's got to reinvent a British agriculture policy. It's got to think about how much environmental stuff we keep or don't keep, depending on the final deal. So I think it's really interesting that it's really a real cross-Whitehall enterprise of a scale we haven't seen, I think, since the end of the Second World War in terms of the collective effort needed to get this right. But it feels like, given all of that and given the cross-Whitehall nature of it, it's only made more complicated by creating two new departments to sort of stick their all in. And you say that David Davis's department is essentially a sort of souped-up cabinet office unit, but then you've also got Liam Fox, and they all think that they're in charge of Brexit, making Brexit a success. I think we'll see very quickly whether this arrangement works, is sustainable. One of the things we say about machinery of government changes is they basically cause so much short-term problems that only do them if they're really going to work in the longer term. There's a real air of chaos about this, and we still don't know what Brexit means, apart from Brexit. So I think the interesting question is whether by the sort of, you know, mid-autumn, I don't know whether that's a concept, sort of not treasury autumn, which is uh, is the end of the year, but sort of by what normal people think of as autumn, sort of October-ish, we start to get a sense the government does know where it's doing, that actually there is sort of, there are good mechanisms in place for properly coordinating this, that the Prime Minister is sorting out these, you know, teething problems of putting people in and then sort of trying to make a name for themselves straight away. Uh, Just very quickly, um, because we are uh, now running out of time, Henry, whose side are you on in the cat fight? None of them. I really dislike cats. Uh, but uh... <laughs> And Jill, you don't like cats either. No, I don't like cats now. But unfortunately, um, all this cat talk and there's a lot of cat picture swapping at the Institute for Government has provoked our, uh, our communications officer to suggest that we need a cat too, which I think would be thoroughly bad news. But, uh, but anyway, so there may be... Ollie, where do you stand cat. on cats? Oh, it's got to be Palmerston. But you stand, are, you, are, you a, are you a cat fan? No, but it's got to be part. It's got to be part. Oh, I think Gladstone looks quite sweet in his red box, though, doesn't it? The key to getting a cat appears to be uh, having Philip Hammond as Secretary of State of your department, because uh, Palmerston only arrived in the Foreign Office in April. Philip Hammond's Foreign Secretary moves to the Treasury, and within a week, the Treasury has a cat. So if uh, Theresa May keeps reshuffling him, uh, there'll be cats. And what's all the other? Over what's your other top fact about Philip Hammond? Uh, he actually owns two dogs. He doesn't really like cats. That's Welsh terrier. The big, and a the big scoops on the uh, on the Red Box podcast. Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for uh, this week. As ever, you can read all the latest political news on thetimes.co.uk, where non-subscribers can now read two articles a week in full uh, in exchange for just giving us your email address. You can also read Jill's full uh, piece on the way that Theresa May is running number ten on the Red Box website. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or on your Android device, and sign up to my morning email briefing, landing in your inbox every morning with the latest political news and occasional jokes. You can do that at thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box email. My thanks to Jill, Ollie and Henry. But for now, all we can be sure of is Brexit means Brexit. And Jeremy Corbyn clings on, obviously.
Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.